Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know, he he testified unequivocally that the clinical evidence from the CT scan post-fall and the types of you know, symptoms he was reporting are related to one another. And they just didn't have any medical evidence to refute that. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, I'm as you can see, uh, even though our listeners can't, I'm in the office for the first time in a while. The real, the real office. Uh, forgot what that was like. So it's yeah, been good. exactly. When we were just talking about beforehand that uh, you've got some artwork on the uh, whiteboard behind you. You want to describe it? Um, I, I don't, it's, it's very, um, fine art, really high quality (laughs) illustration, um, by Jeff Harris. I don't know. Maybe I can get a picture and put it on the uh, podcast website for, for people to, it kind of looks like, I mean, he's got a a bow tie and some glasses, maybe like he's uh, like a professor or something, but he's got spiky hair, maybe like, uh, you know, a chubby Albert Einstein or something. Yeah. And it's just, it's looking right over my, he's looking right over my shoulder. So I don't know if this is Jeff, you know, just saying like, I'm always watching work harder. (laughs) I'm not really sure. Yeah, it's, exactly. I'm kind of getting like a law professor vibe from, from the drawing. So well, our, our, our guest and I are, are just, we're, we're just staring at it the whole time. So <laughs> I we have to, uh, somebody else. Yeah. I meant to erase <laughs> it and I just, things have been crazy today. So no time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. Uh, our guest is fantastic trial lawyer from uh, Moultrie, Georgia. Uh, Rob Howe. Rob, how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much, Steve. Great to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about this case. And uh, we were talking beforehand about some good sort of uh, backstories that I think will be uh, our listeners will find interesting. But um, but let me introduce you, Rob, so everybody can know um, who you are. Um, so Rob is the founding partner of the Howell Law Firm uh, down in Moultrie, Georgia. He's also got offices in Thomasville, Albany and an office in Atlanta. Uh, and you can look up Rob at southgalaw.com. That's southgalaw.com. And uh, Rob has been trying uh, or uh, trying lots of high profile cases for a long time. Uh, he's an AV rated lawyer, been a super lawyer since 2016. And before that, he was a rising star, um, been uh uh, named as one of the top 100 trial lawyers uh, in America by the American Trial Lawyers Association and um, was a magna cum laude uh, graduate from Valdosta State uh, University and then went to the University of Georgia Law School. Uh, and I noticed that when you were in um, at Valdosta State, you were on the tennis team and lettered in tennis, right? That's right. That's right. I'm almost too old to do that anymore, but... Uh-oh. <laughs> That's back in the day, the glory days, as they call it. That's right. That's right. Um, I noticed you were also named as the uh, the best attorney in Moultrie by the Moultrie Observer. And uh, what I thought was really great was that you set a, um, a record verdict uh, down in Lowndes County, uh, which is the county where this case was tried, uh, in 2014 for a medical malpractice case that was uh, just short of $2 million. Uh, and then you broke that record with uh, the case that we're about to talk about here. Uh, in Lowndes County again. So uh, uh, obviously uh, very successful uh, all over Georgia, but especially in uh, in Lowndes County, which is Valdosta. And uh, and so we're just uh, happy to have you on the show, Rob. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Steve and Yvonne. Thanks for having me. And yeah, Lowndes County has been real good to me in my practice. I've 
thought about moving there a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to you got to practice close enough, so I, th- I think you'll keep getting cases. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's it's become a really good place to try a good plaintiff's case for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, let's talk about this case. The name of the case is uh, Mark Allen Corbett, uh, MD, versus the Hospital Authority of Lowndes County DBA uh, South Georgia Medical Center. And everybody in that area knows the hospital known as South Georgia Medical Center. Uh, and so, Doctor Corbett, uh, this is just a, um, I mean, a, a tragic case for for Doctor Corbett. But in, and you don't really think of it happening very much. But Doctor Corbett was a a vascular surgeon, a very successful surgeon, had privileges to operate at South Georgia Medical Center and had just finished doing an appendectomy on January 25th of 2010. Uh, And as I understand it, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, is as he was finished and was going to sit down uh, to write his orders after the surgery, uh, went to sit on a stool that they had there. And uh, when he tried to sit on it, the stool kind of went flying out from under him. He fell and struck his head uh, and suffered a, um, a catastrophic brain injury um, to the extent where he was diagnosed with uh, post-concussive epilepsy, uh, had uh, multiple seizures, and I think at least six grand mal seizures that I uh, read about. Uh, and just had a number of issues uh, like, um, uh, you know, his uh, cognitive impairment, uh, depression, headaches, uh, you know, light affected him. And it was uh, bad enough to the point that he had to um, turn in his license, was unable to, to keep um, uh, operating, unable to uh, keep his medical license. Um, and as we, we talked about, Rob, um, th- this case actually took, I, I noticed it, it took seven years to the day, uh, from what I noticed, that the verdict was it happened on January 25th, 2010, and the verdict came out on January 25th, 2017. Uh, in that time period, uh, you know, he had uh, basically lost his practice, lost his livelihood. And um, I think you, you can tell us it sounded like he, it had a profound effect on his family and on his personal life and uh, just changed every aspect of his life. Without a doubt. I mean, this this injury turned his world literally upside down and figuratively too. But I mean, he, he lost everything he had. I mean, he was a really successful surgeon, um, you know, making great money, living in a fancy house, you know, driving a fancy car, um, beautiful family, beautiful children. And by the time we tried this case, um, he, he, every, piece of real estate that he had owned had been foreclosed on, including mm. his primary residence. Um, his, his, all the vehicles that he owned had been repossessed. Um, I mean, he just literally lost everything. Um, he had, was divorced from his wife and really estranged um, from them and his, his kids. And I wouldn't talk more about, about that, but that was really had more to do with the injury and the type of injury that he suffered than anything. Um, and he had fortunately for him remarried his high school sweetheart from his hometown in Lakeland in Georgia. And, you know, was literally living in a mobile home, uh, helping her clean houses, uh, seven years after this injury occurred. So, 
you talk about, you know, a fall from the heavens. I mean, this was right. generally, I mean, it really was one of those. And so it, 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 it rocked his world in every possible way. Yeah, just a profound uh, effect on him. And uh, and as I said, you tried this case in January uh, of 2017 um, and uh, got a, a $10 million verdict on behalf of Dr. Corbett. Uh, and as far as the apportionment went, 70% um, of that was apportioned to South Georgia Medical Center and 30% was apportioned to Dr. Corbett. Uh, so that the uh, recoverable amount was $7 million. Uh, but just great right. work. And, and I, I was interested uh, on the arguments that you heard, you know, that we see from the defense in this case on, you know, why this was Dr. Corbett's fault and, uh, and, and not theirs. But we can talk about that uh, as we go through as we go through the facts. Right. Yeah. I mean, they defended the case just basically on a contributory negligence standard, you know, that a rolling stool rolls and everybody knows a rolling stool rolls and you got to be careful when you sit on a rolling stool. And he obviously wasn't careful because he fell. I mean, that right, was right. pretty much the extent of their defense. And, you know, we thankfully had good evidence on our side though, that there had been a prior problem with this stool um, in an operating room by another South Georgia Medical Center employee. And I, and I think had it not been for that, we wouldn't have won this case. Right. Uh, but that, in our view, put the hospital on notice, or certainly should have, that there was a problem. Uh, they never investigated um, it, anything about that prior complaint. And in fact, denied throughout the trial that, that, that he, it was a complaint even about this same type of stool, which you know, um, I think it was really hard for them to deny once the witness came into court and said, yes, that's the stool I fell from. Right. <laughs> that was actually one thing I was wondering about, and I, and I think you just explained it. But um, from what I saw, there was uh, 11 operating rooms at South Georgia Medical Center. This that's happened right. in operating room number five, and there were four of these stools. And this particular stool had been bought from a dental supply company and had hard plastic casters on the bottom. And then of course, you know, for anybody who's been in a, a hospital or in an OR, I mean, the, the floors are very shiny, uh, very can be very slick and, and hard. And so when you put the, that hard plastic caster on that, you know, sort of slick floor, it the chair can move out and, and slide right. away very quickly, which is what happened. Right. And that's, you know, one of the things we had to look into before we even took the case. The case was uh, was originated by Greg Voiles, uh, who, who I tried the case with, a great trial lawyer who's now a Superior Court judge in Lowndes County. Um, and he brought me into the case right after he got it in his office. And, you know, initially and in looking at it, I, I was thinking we might be looking for a products case here or looking at a potential products case here. But what we found in researching the product, the stool, was that the stool really was not defective in and of itself. It, it did exactly what it was supposed to do, which is roll. Right. Um, it, it was the type of stool, and, and more specifically, the type of wheels, the casters on the stool that were the problem, because unbeknownst to me before this case, that, you know, there is a rule in the furniture rolling wheel industry that you, you use soft on hard, hard on soft. You use soft casters on a hard surface, hard casters on a soft surface. And if you think about it, that makes sense. You know, that's a rubber wheel is going to provide more rolling resistance on a hard, slick surface 
than a plastic nylon type of wheel or caster. And, and so, you know, we, we ultimately were able, I think, to successfully prove that the hospital had violated that rule by buying this type of stool with this type of caster configuration and putting it in the operating room for somebody to use. You know, it was through a lot of our discovery, you know, we, of course, examined the operating room, we examined all the other equipment, every other piece of equipment in that operating room, including other stools, had rubber casters on it, hmm. except for this stool, right? And so I think that really meant a lot to the jury when they found that out, because right. we had photographs of, you know, the operating room and all of the equipment, you know, everything in that operating room, except for maybe the, the, the table itself, moves around and can be wheeled around on a cart. And everything else in there had rubber wheels on it. Right. Um, you know, it, it just just makes perfect sense. I mean, you, you don't want to put a stool in there that's going to be so slick and slippery that um, you have to concentrate on it as opposed to what you're doing with the patient on the operating table. Right, right. Yeah, I, I thought one of the effective things that um, it sounds like you did in your opening because this it was in your PowerPoint that you sent us was... Um, I mean, already just taking a step back when I, when I started reading about this case, you, you, you do think, I think you have an assumption that I had an assumption, at least that everything in a hospital, all the equipment in a hospital in general, I sort of expect to be kind of pretty regulated and safe. Um, but one of the the things in particular that you pointed out was especially in the operating room, you know, that's right. where all the, you want all your equipment to be safe and predictable because right. everything that happens in there is so important. You know, one slip, uh, one mishap and, you know, patient dies. I mean, Dr. Corbett, you kept saying to us during, you know, this case, what if I had been doing a carotid arm? And I tried to sit on this stool and my scalpel slipped. I mean, you know, that, that results in a dead patient 100% of the time. And so, right. you know, the, the case had concluded. I mean, his work on this patient had concluded at the time this fall happened. But, you know, he was still in the, in the sterile field. Uh, and these surgeons and all the medical professionals in the operating rooms, they're trained not to use their hands once they're scrubbed to touch anything other than the medical equipment in the patient. So, you know, one of the arguments the defense kept making was, well, you should have just held on to the stool. Well, they're not trained to hold on to the stool. Right. Rub in. And so generally what happens is, is that, you know, a nurse or a surgical technician will offer the stool to the surgeon and, and actually hold on to it while they sit on it. That did not happen in this case. Um, and if that's not available, then, you know, the defense argued, well, what Dr. Corbett should have done was taken the stool over to a wall hooked his foot around it, um, put his back up against the wall and sat down on it. And, you know, that just seemed a little excessive. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really does. Well, and you think about after I, I read about this case, but before we got to talk about it today, um, I started looking like when you go to the dentist's office or for a doctor's appointment at what they're sitting in and what they're doing, you know, how and, and obviously not a sterile environment, not an operating room, but they always just kind of just sit down without, you know, they're not usually holding it or no. staring at it. They just sit, they just kind of back into it and sit down. Right. 
well, you know, a lot of doctors' offices are carpeted, you know, in mm-hmm. the, uh, some of the exam rooms. And so these types of stools are fine for that, you know, and they, they're probably fine in the dentist office, which is they came from a dental supply company. And right. one of the witnesses we called was the purchasing agent, you know, for the hospital who, who basically said, look, I got out the catalog and I ordered the cheapest stool I could find that had four legs wheels and you know we didn't look into whether or not it should be hard plastic casters or whether it should be rubber there just really was no forefront in that uh, on the hospital's part at all and i think that was one of our good arguments that resonated with the jury for sure yeah yeah i was thinking about it when you, you know this argument of uh of that everything in the or should be safe you know because you want them focusing on the patient you know i, I i'm sure that there's you know, rules or requirements on what types of footwear you can wear into the OR, um, you know, what the patient, you know, the wheels that the patient bed is on, because you don't want that thing sliding around all over the place. Right. Um, you know, so they, so they, you know, so tightly regulate all of those things because, you know, it, a small mistake can be, can have catastrophic consequences. Um, so it just makes sense that you would look into the stools that your, your doctors and nurses might be sitting on to make sure that they don't um, go sliding all over the place. Right. You know, surprisingly, we were unable to find any published industry standard from the medical industry that ever really said what we wanted it to say, which was, you know, you've got to use these hard plastic casters only right. and they're not suitable for an operating room. There was certainly a lot of stuff out there in the furniture industry in general about the safety of chairs and rolling stools uh, that we were able to, you know, get our expert to talk about. Um, But, you know, surprisingly, no real medical regulation. Uh, So we, you know, we were just stuck with arguing good old fashioned common sense, you know, right, right. (laughs) Which I think sometimes is better, you know, than getting bogged down in a lot of detailed regs anyway. Um, you know, there was no OSHA, real no, really no OSHA issue in this case because Dr. Corbett was not an employee of the hospital. And so, you know, an OSHA complaint was made, but they really didn't go anywhere because he was an independent contractor. And so they just really refused okay. to look into it. Yeah, because I, th- I thought I saw in some of the articles that there was uh, at least some claim that, that it violated the OSHA regulations. Um, we, we tried to go down yeah. that route, but it just, you know, ultimately the judge ruled that inadmissible and rightfully so. It was the right call. I mean, it, it, Dr. Corbett been an employee. We probably could have gotten some of that stuff in, um, but not because he, with him being an independent contractor. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the evidence you put together, because from what I saw, you, um, you I think you had a representative from the dental supply company. Uh, who came in and said, I would never have recommended this for an OR, this chair uh, right. for an OR. Uh, and then you had this issue of, the, of uh, I think it was a nurse that had had the same type of chair kind of fly out from under her when she went to sit on it. And then, and she even complained to the hospital about it and they seemed to basically do nothing about it. But let's take, take those in reverse order because I think the second of those two witnesses was, was certainly the key for us. Um, th- this witness's name was Maddie Battle. I'll never forget. Uh, surgical tech that operated uh, in this same operating room a lot with Dr. Corbett. And a lot of times the surgical, you know, techs and personnel nurses are assigned to a surgeon. They get used to working with each other. 
that was the case with Miss Battle. So she she'd done hundreds and hundreds of cases with Dr. Corbett. And so he, he has fallen. He's had a seizure. Um, he's out of the ER, but he's admitted up on the floor. This is a day or two after the fall. And Maddie Battle um, goes to check on him. Just, you know, heard that he had been injured, goes to his hospital room. His wife is in there. Another nurse is in there at the time. And they're just chatting and she's wishing him get well soon and that type of stuff. And she, she just happens to let slip that, well, you know, I told them this was going to happen with these stools. <laughs> and Dr. Corbett's wife at the time said, wait a minute now, what, what, what did you say? <laughs> Repeat that? And she said, yeah, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, I had one of these stools slip out from under me like this. And I went and reported it to the director of the ORs. Uh, and, and they didn't do anything about it. They left him in there. Of course, you know, well, that evidence was key for us, for sure. I mean, that, that put the hospital on actual notice of a hazardous condition. And from that point on, it just became a regular old premises liability case for us. You know, I mean, right. they created a hazard by putting this unsuitable stool in the operating room. They're on notice uh, that it's a problem. Uh, they didn't investigate that prior complaint at all, and somebody got hurt. And, you know, one, one of the really interesting things about this case that was fortuitous, the, the, the gentleman who ended up being our jury for person was a, a safety director at a local rail yard. Oh, wow. Normally, that would probably be one of the first people I would strike, <laughs> you know, <laughs> off of a jury. Um, but... You know, he got on and we realized who he was and what he did for a living. And so, you know, I told the trial team and I told my colleagues, I said, you know, if we can get that guy, if we can convince him that ignoring a prior complaint means the company buys the liability, I mean, surely he understands that in his position. And so we just kind of tailored everything to that argument after that. And it worked. He ended up being the four person. And I think ultimately, uh, after talking to him and some of the other jurors after, after the trial, he really he really swayed them with that. Yeah. Um, I could tell during my closing, you know, when I was preaching that point home, he was really with us on that. So we felt pretty good about that. Um, you know, right. I can't get a read on everybody, but we felt like we got a pretty good read on him um, for that reason. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So 
If you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that, you know, once you once you find that prior incident, that does so much for you because number one, as you point out, now you've got the actual knowledge, just not, not, not that they just should have known, but that it was reported. They knew when they didn't do anything about it. But then I also think it helps even from the sort of common sense approach that, that some jurors or just your average person might take of, you know, the, you know, basically the first time somebody falls on something or whatever, it's like, okay, who, you know, who knew? But right. then, but now, you know, now it's not just one klutzy doctor or one freak accident. Now, right. you know, now there's a, there's, there's somebody else that had this happen to them. And that, that just changes everything. That's kind of like the one free bite rule. And right. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Get one pass and they had their one pass and, and luckily nobody got hurt. And on the second time, somebody got catastrophically hurt. And so. I really think that resonated with the jury. Now, the defense never did admit that 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 Maddie Battle's fall was from this stool. Um, but, and we took her deposition. Uh, we had secured the stool and wheeled it in. And, and the best she would do for us at deposition is say, yeah, I think that's it. it I think that's what it looked like. But, you know, we never did really get a 100% positive ID uh, and I was worried about that at trial, you know, and I was worried about Miss Battle at trial because she still worked for the hospital. Right. You know, and so I, I was very concerned that she was going to back up on us, you know, once we got there and I was going to have to really treat her as hostile or, you know, really, really, you know, be more firm with her than I ended up having to be. Um but thankfully, that was not the case. Uh, she gave us a better idea at trial than she did at her deposition. You know, we had the stool there. Just early on in the examination, I said, "Miss Battle, you had a you know fall from a prior stool, uh, prior fall from a stool. Is this the stool you fell from?" And she said, "Yes." <laughs> so hey, at that point, you know, we've got what we need, and there really is no question that they they are on notice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and then I thought I saw that you had uh, some incidents that happened after um, Dr. Corbett fell, that maybe did. a couple of others. Yeah, we did. And, and we could not get those in. Uh, and huh. It probably was the right call um, by the trial judge, although it was frustrating at the time. The, the, the one that I thought was really a close call that probably should have come in um, the same day that Dr. Corbett fell. Uh, the director of the operating room, her name was Margie Clements, 
she took the stool that Dr. Corbett fell some from and was going to put on a demonstration about how to sit on that type of stool safely in the OR for the other surgical techs and the nurses. So in the process of performing that demonstration, guess what happened? She <laughs> fell. You know, she fell in front of 18 witnesses from the stool while she was trying to be safe. Right. Right. <laughs> while she was focused right. on trying to sit down. Right. And the court frustratingly would not let that in. And, and the basis for that was it was a, you know, after the fall incident, which wouldn't go to notice of any kind. And, and you know, that that the court's reasoning was that, you know, how she sat on it was not identical to the way Dr. Corbett sat on it and things of that nature. But I, I thought that was a mistake. I mean, I thought that was probably error when he ruled that way. I mean, the, the, the whole defense was causation and that this the fall was not caused by doctor it was it was caused by dr corbett and not by the stool and so i thought well surely we have to be able to put this in to rebut that right now we have another right. fall from somebody on the same day in the same operating room with the same stool who's focused on trying to be careful while she's sitting on it and she still fell so i, I just felt like that um was pretty clearly admissible yeah, I mean, you don't when it comes to trying to get in other similar incidents, you don't get a whole lot more similar circumstances right. than that. Right, right. It was it was frustrating. Thankfully, you know, I mean, I felt like if we had had to take the case up on appeal, that would have given us a, a really good grounds. But fortunately, we didn't have to. And the flip side is they couldn't they couldn't they they didn't have that as a basis to say it shouldn't have come in because it didn't. Right. You know, so, I mean, it was, I think, probably not the correct ruling, maybe a safe one, you know, by the trial judge. Ultimately, it didn't matter. But and, and then there was another fall by another doctor even after the fact. But but honestly, we could never get him to identify that it was this type of stool. And so right. that was probably the correct call to not let that one in just because he really couldn't say it was from this stool or one, one of the other three that we knew were in the operating rooms in circulation. It just um, seems right. crazy because this is, so this is, this is after Dr. Corbett's been so horribly injured and the stools just, and, and, uh, and we know somebody else had, had fallen on it previously and reported it, but it was still, but didn't get hurt that bad. So it's still around. Then he gets hurt really bad and it's, still around for other people to hurt themselves on. I mean, it's crazy. It, it's a it, stool. It's like, it, how much does that cost to replace? And right. it, it infuriated our client. I mean, it made him so angry, you know, that it was still there. And so after the second doctor fell, they did replace these stools and they replaced them with, uh, with stool with rubber casters and actually went to a five-legged version and not a four-legged version, which was even more stable. And provided more rolling resistance. So they they did ultimately replace them, but not until at least two more people had fallen. Thankfully, nobody badly injured like Dr. Corbett. Um, but we, you know, we were not able, they were able to keep that out on the subsequent remedial. I mean, the replacement of the stools, they were able to keep out mm -hmm. on the subsequent remedial argument. And we'd had a products case, maybe not the case. You know, we probably could have right, got feasibility. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, it, I think there's an argument to be made that it wasn't changed because of his incident because they waited for a few more. So it wouldn't be a subsequent remedial measure, but uh, yeah, that's true. Right. But we lost that. Well. <laughs> but 
but thankfully we had the prior one and that was the one that really uh yeah. ruled the day you know and that was the most important one and you you also mentioned the the witness that we had from the the um the dental supply company that uh, greg boys i give him credit did a great job of tracking her down from a very old purchase order and interviewing her and getting her prepared and, and, and the defense did not depose her so they did not know what she was going to say until they heard it at trial and in fact she was the very first witness we called you know and said you know it, were these tools intended to be used how the hospital was using them and she said no if, if i had known they were ordering stools for a, you know an operating room i would have recommended this other model for sure and here's why. So that was a pretty good way to start the evidence, I thought. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you had the stool in the courtroom. Um, we talk about that and how did you use it? And then I, I was just wondering, uh, what were the floors of the courtroom like? And did you ever have the stool kind of just like slide across the floor? Yeah, so we had it there. Um, the courtroom's carpeted. Okay. Um, and the defense had gone to great lengths to file every type of motion they could possibly file. They didn't want anybody performing any demonstrations with that stool in front of the jury because the floor was different, right? And the judge granted that motion. They even filed a motion that while they, they couldn't prevent the stool from going back into evidence, you know, back to the jury room with the jurors, they didn't, they didn't want any jurors performing any quote unquote tests with the stool. Hmm. Uh, and, and what they argued was they didn't want any jurors sitting on it see if it would come out from underneath you or not. And, and they, their claim was, that, well, it's a different type of floor, different scenario, different circumstances. So, you know, I, I don't know whether the jurors sat on it or not. I mean, we really right. don't know the answer to that. Um, but that motion was granted and they were instructed not to. So they probably followed that. Um, but yeah, we did have it in there. Um, it was available. You know, we did obviously hold it up. Um, and they were allowed to touch the wheels we we did get that uh, accomplished they, you know to, to feel that they were in fact hard plastic it's actually a vinyl material but it's the equivalent of a hard plastic wheel is what it is you can't you can't indent it with your thumbnail i mean it's that right. can't scratch i think it's interesting that they were so concerned about the jurors testing it on carpet since that would have been a better surface for them right i mean there would it seems right. to me there'd be the potential for the jury to con conclude, yep. oh, this isn't that bad, you know? Right. right. I, I just think they didn't really know how it would react. And, yeah. You know, heaven forbid one of the jurors got hurt with it back there. They certainly lost that. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Maybe they were worried about that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah. good point. But, you so, know, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was going to... Uh, I was just going to ask a question. You had uh, mentioned how they filed so many different motions and um, you did send us your pretrial order. And so I saw some of those motions and I wanted to ask you a question about a couple of them. Sure. One is that they filed a, uh, a motion for sequestered voir dire, which you they don't did. normally see except in like criminal cases, uh, well, you know, for an individual was, voir dire. What, what was the basis for that? And it was granted um steve um much to our chagrin because you know I, I am a big believer in you got to move fast in these trials I right mean, these these jurors are not there because they want to be necessarily and you know we really try not to waste their time and i i think a long trial sometimes punishes the plaintiff you know rightly or yeah. wrongly I just think that happens and so we were really concerned about that and and the the, the basis for their motion was 
There's one hospital in town. Uh, it employs a lot of people. Uh, and they didn't want somebody saying something about having a bad experience in that hospital in front of the entire jury pool and poisoning, you know, the entire veneer. And so I thought that was crazy. I mean, you know, I thought it would slow us down tremendously. Um, and it, and it did slow us down some, but I'll tell you what, what we did to combat that. And it actually worked really well. Um, and I'm sure y'all have used questionnaires for jury selection. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Before. Um, you know, I've never had good luck with that except maybe in federal court where the, the jurors actually fill those out in advance. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. times the yeah. response rate's just not very good. Right. Things, right? And, and so what we decided to do is uh, when the, the entire pool got there, and I think they had, you know, summoned at least 100 potential jurors, um, the court had them all, all 100 of them, fill out the questionnaire as the first thing that they did, right? So we had that information, you know, available to us. And then after that, and that took, you know, an hour or whatever it took. And, and after that, then we did general uh, questions of the entire panel. Okay. Um, while we sent somebody else back to the office to start synthesizing what was in those question uh, questionnaires. And so, um, and that pretty much took the rest of the day, you know, to, to get through that. And so the way it worked out um is the judge then told us he was going to allow both sides to call in a quote unquote limited number of individuals for individual sequestered vortar. He wasn't going to let it happen ad nauseum and he never did put a number on it as to how many. Um, but he hinted strongly that he wasn't going to let us call more than about 10 or 15 individually per side. Uh, and I think it ended up being about that. I think, you know, the defense called about 10 or 12 and maybe we called eight in individually. Um, but I tell you, I mean, it, it was it, it ended up being very, very informative because a couple of the, the jurors, I remember, you know, some something they had put on the questionnaire really piqued our interest. And, you know, we, we, a lot of those questions had to do with do you use a rolling stool at work? Do you use one, you know, in your in your day job, use one home and. Some of them said yes, and then we were able to kind of draw out from them what type it was, whether they'd ever fallen off on it before, fallen off of it before, and things like that. That would have taken a long time to do, probably in front of the entire panel. Um, so while I didn't like it going in, I think it turned out okay, but um, largely because the judge really limited it on the back end, um, and we, you know, we had our jury by. Wednesday at noon, we started the trial on a Tuesday morning. So I guess that's not terrible, you know, a day and a half. Right. Case like this. I mean, my preference would be get it in a day and probably try to get your opening done that same day. That's usually the way it goes. Um, so we were a little slower than that, but we were still able to start our evidence on day two and get a jury seated. So all in all, it didn't slow us down too badly. Right. Well, one thing we were talking about, I think, off the air was um, how you had some difficulty getting this case to trial, which is why it took seven years. But yep. part of that was because the court's calendar was so limited. So if you're taking a day and a half to pick a jury, and I don't know if you had only had a week or a little bit more, I mean, that does give you a, a pretty tight time frame to try the case. Yeah, we just, and, and it's really no fault of, of the courts at all. Um, they just, 
to this, you know, judge, uh, it's just too busy. I mean, he's handling all the misdemeanor, you know, criminal cases in a big county. Uh, and he kept telling us every, I, I think we tried this, pre-tried this case like five times. I mean, and every time we would go and, and start talking about dates, he would say, look, you can have this week, but if you roll over, over into Monday, you can't. I mean, you can't go over past a week because I've already got court set. I've already got, you know, criminal stuff set that can't be rescheduled for that next week. And we just kept running into that and running into that and running into that. And so finally, you know, after we kept begging, uh, we got this particular scheduling. Uh, we actually, I think Monday would have been a holiday. So we started on Tuesday, uh, which meant that we were going into that next week for sure. Right. And so um, I don't know if that's what ultimately did it, but that's the date that we ended up getting on uh, January the 17th, I believe it was, or right. some, somewhere around there and back in 2017. So we started on a Tuesday. We uh, had the jury by lunch on Wednesday, break for lunch, and we started with opening Wednesday afternoon. And I think we got through maybe two or three witnesses that afternoon as well. Uh, I wanted to ask you, so we, we talked a little bit about this beforehand as well, but, you know, in, in a case like this, you've got, I think, some, some uh, you know, what we would call jury biases possibly working against you. One is that you've got, you know, the only hospital in town um, that is well known and might employ a lot of people. Uh, the other is that you've got uh, a surgeon who's, um, you know, at least looked upon by most people as probably being pretty wealthy maybe not even needing the money, um, even though he's obviously been badly injured and he can't uh, can't act as a surgeon anymore. Talk about how th those played into trial and how you overcame them. Yeah, I mean, it's always a concern. I mean, I, I do a lot of med mal work, a lot of it in South Georgia, and so I'm, I'm certainly no stranger to suing the only hospital in town. And, and, and I think you just have to really be upfront about that in jury selection with your jurors. I mean, you gotta, you gotta take the time to, you know, weed out who might have a potential bias, um, and, and who's just not gonna award a lot of money against the only hospital because they're so afraid it's gonna close and they're gonna have to now drive, you know, a, a town away to get their health care. And, and so, you know, I, I, it's one of the, it's like the first or second question I ask in board dire after I introduce myself, you know, really just get it out there from the beginning. Is there anybody out here who, who is for whatever reason is just not going to find against this hospital because they're worried if you do that, that your hospital might close. And, you know, some people raise their hands. I mean, they do and you right. have to deal with it and you have to, you know, try to rehabilitate those people and make sure that they can be fair and understand that, you know, look, this is, um, this is not something that Dr. Corbett chose to happen to him here. You know, uh, if, if this had happened to him in New York where there's 18 hospitals within a, you know, five mile radius, then you don't have this concern. But just because he got injured in Lyles County doesn't necessarily mean he should be treated differently. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a real concern um, always. And, and, you know, the second point that you made was probably a bit bigger concern than I realized. Um, I, I didn't really pick up on it. I mean, to me, throughout this entire case, Mark Corbett was always very sympathetic. I mean, I knew what he'd been through. I knew what he was suffering with. And, and, and you know, if you can imagine 
how frustrating this was for him. He is wicked smart, remains wicked smart, right? I mean, he his brain power and ability to think has not necessarily been diminished. It's his ability to recall in the short term and, of course, these debilitating headaches and then, and then the possibility of having a seizure at any moment without notice. It, it, you know, it, it took away his ability to practice medicine, and that's all the man ever really wanted to do. I mean, he he trained for forever to do this uh, and was really, really talented. And so, you know, here he is after the fact, still plenty smart, can't really put it to any use that is meaningful for him. Um, and so you can imagine how frustrated he, he was. Um, but yeah. Um, interestingly, we talked to the jurors after the trial and, um, Benny, well, I'll say the foreman's name, the, the safety, um, director who ended up being the foreperson. And I had a long conversation. He actually stopped me in the parking lot as we were leaving the courtroom that day to talk to me about it. And he told me that the first vote that they took was seven in favor of the plaintiff and five against, and there were seven whites and five African-Americans on the jury and all five African-Americans were, were against voting for the plaintiff. And so I asked him what their rationale was. And he said it was because that they felt like this doctor surely had made enough money over the years that he had to have some money set aside and just didn't really need the help that he was asking for. So, you know, fortunately, uh, our jury person was a strong personality, um, you know, convinced those folks to um, come around. Uh, and, you know, I think that perhaps that might have kept this verdict down a little bit lower than it otherwise would have been. Um, who, who knows? Um, you know, I, it still was a record verdict and we were certainly proud of it at the time. Um, and it helped Dr. Corbett tremendously, which is what, we, what the whole point was, obviously. Yeah, I wondered about that in reading about the case, because I thought one of the things that you had done very effectively based on the, the materials that you had sent us was kind of point out, you know, he was basically trained half his life mm -hmm. to do a thing he couldn't do anymore, which is huge. I mean, that just putting aside all the kind of other you know, health conditions and things he was going to have to live with the rest of his life. Right. The, the idea that you spent your whole life with this goal that you achieved and now it's been taken from you is just really sad. Really, really sad. And I, it, you know, he was star student from a small town outside of Aldosta, you know, grew up in the area, um, which uh, y'all are probably familiar with that, but basically means he had the highest SAT score in his graduating class, you know, he literally graduated first in his class. He goes to college on a full scholarship, you know, goes to medical school on a, on a scholarship, um, you know, spends some time in, in the army where he's a flight surgeon. You know, he's got all these vascular surgeon residency trainings and board certifications that just took forever and ever to get. Um, and yes, he had had a, you know, a good run as a successful surgeon, but he, he was not that old. I mean, he was, you know, in his early fifties when this happened to him. I mean, you know, this is not somebody that was at, at retirement age. I mean, he, he still had a good 20 years or so left in him to, to, to go at it hard. And so that was a big source of source of the depression that he had. Yeah. Uh, that, 
was really a serious issue for him. I mean, well, and, and also to your point about, you know, the, the jurors initially thinking, um, that he certainly had enough money that, that is saved up. I, I mean, one of the things I didn't know, I think until I had friends basically who were going through med school and becoming doctors is kind of how little they make until they get to a certain point. You know, I think everybody thinks that's a profession where you're just raking it in and, and maybe you get there one day, but that's right. certainly not the first phase of your career. No. And then so many of them, you know, come out so deep in debt that, even after they're in private practice for 10, 15 years, it's still not, you know, um, as lucrative as they would like it to be. Yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, that, you know, a, a surgeon training barely makes enough money to pay rent. And, you know, especially for the number of hours they worked. Oh, gosh, if you added up the number of hours, the right. hourly rate wouldn't be very high, I don't think, you know. Right, but right. They train hard. So that, that was a big deal. And he was, he really had some very, very serious depression that he was being heavily medicated for, which was another reason why, you know, he lost his medical license. I mean, that combination of the depression meds and the anti-seizure um, medications, plus the brain injury itself, I mean, we, we had a great uh, neuropsychologist from Shands, you know, do an examination on him and testify at trial and and he, he just, he testified as impaired. I mean, you know, what the, what the physician, the neuropsychologist said was, look, he's, you know, this is somebody that, you know, made the highest SAT score in his graduating class. And I'm asking him five simple questions and he's missing three of them. And it's simply because he can't remember what I talked to him about five minutes ago. This is not somebody who needs to be practicing medicine. You know? Right. Absolutely. I'm, so I'm glad you brought that up because it sounded like, um, you know, we, so we, on this show, we, we deal with a, a decent amount of, of kind of, uh, traumatic brain injuries and things like that. And a lot of times they're, they're defended at least in part sort of on the extent of the injury and, and kind of questioning how much was related to the injury, especially when you get to headaches and things like that. It sounded like in this case, they didn't really put up a defense at all about the, the cause of the injuries or, or the extent of, of the injuries? No, they really didn't. You know, we called all of his local doctors uh, to trial to testify uh, and they didn't call any physician to rebut any of it. And so in closing, I really hit that hard and hammered it home that, you know, that they, mm -hmm. if they had some reason to doubt that his injuries were real or manufactured in any way, they didn't call any doctor to say that. The only thing I think that they pointed to, and I think it's referenced in the pretrial order, and, I, and I'm sure they asked him about it on cross-examination at trial, but they didn't make a big deal about it. He had this minor car accident. He had a, you know, a, a real minor cervical strain injury, but he had reported some headaches from that. you know, um, and, and so they did ask him about it at trial. But honestly, Yvonne, you're right. I don't think they even mentioned that in the closing. That just They didn't contest it. I mean... You know, he had been was being treated by Dr. Um, uh, Kimford Metter, M-E-A-D-E-R, at, at, at Emory, who's just one of the top neurologists around. And, and you know, he he testified unequivocally that the, the 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 clinical evidence from the CT scan post fall and the types of you know symptoms he was reporting are related to one another. 
And they just didn't have any medical evidence to refute that. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services uh, give him a try you talked about how he had uh, basically lost his family and you know we've talked before you know when you're dealing with these brain injury cases that you know it can not only does it you know change your cognitive ability your memory things like that but it can literally change personality uh and you know i guess i'm just wondering how much testimony was there about, you know, this change, you know, a change in personality that caused him to, you know, basically, uh, you know, sadly lose his family. And, and did any, did his wife, did his wife or ex-wife, uh, I guess at the time, maybe did she come and testify or anything like that? No, she didn't. I mean, we, we had her on the witness list and we really struggled with that. You know, their relationship, unfortunately had gotten so bad. Uh, by the time the case went to trial, we just thought that was a little bit too much of a risk to call her. But I'll tell you what we, what we did do. I, I took a video uh, preservation deposition of his mother because he had moved back in with his mom for a while after this happened and after he was you know, separated from his wife. Uh, and, and unfortunately, she was, was dying of cancer at the time. We, this reason we had to take the preservation uh, video. Otherwise we would have had her there live. And she was able to talk about just what a different person her son had become, you know, than, than what he was versus what he is today. And, and you know, I, we, and we had his, his, his current wife testify a lot about the types of things she had to do for him now that, I mean, quite frankly, she, her testimony was, I remember it vividly. It was like she was having to take care of a kid. I mean, you know, he would, he would leave the, 
the oven on. He would leave the car running. I mean, he just was so forgetful in the short term that he would do things that were dangerous. And she was constantly, you know, having to remind him, did you brush your teeth this morning? I mean, just crazy stuff like that, that none of us even think about that he couldn't remember to do. Um, and, and, you know, we, we actually excused him from the courtroom during the testimony of both of those witnesses. Um, I knew he would break down uncontrollably at the sight of seeing his mother who had then, you know, who had passed away by the time we were going to play that video, talk about what she had witnessed, how she had witnessed him deteriorate. And, and after talking to his, his wife, his current wife, he was real uncomfortable, you know, opening up about the types of problems he was having because she had a lot of respect for him and she just didn't want to, she thought, felt like it was, it would embarrass him to talk about that in front of him to the jury. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we just, you know, without really any explanation, I don't know that there was any needed after the jury heard the testimony. We just asked the judge if it would be okay to excuse him for the next two witnesses. And we played the video of, of his mother and then called his wife to the stand. And those were really two of our last witnesses that we ended with. And did you, you put him on the stand too, I assume? We did. We and did. How did he do? He, he did very well. You know, um, I mean, part of the nature of his injury is, is that his memory's not great. And so there were a lot of, I don't remembers and I don't recalls, but that was to be expected. I mean, that was kind of the same way in his deposition. That wasn't a surprise, but, but, but he, I mean, he did very well. Um, you know, he, he clearly got very emotional when he was talking about how much he loved being a surgeon. And, you know, I mean, he, he, this, this guy operated on his own mother at one point, you know, and he talked about what a shame it was that he was not going to be able to help people like that in the, in the future, because he really liked that um, aspect of, of the profession. And so it, it was a real, you could tell it was genuine um, and, and, it came across as somebody who was really lost in the woods. You know, I mean, he was just soul searching, trying to find himself and reinvent himself. And that kind of became one of the themes of the damages argument I made at the closing is that, you know, he's, he's clearly down, but I argued to the jury, he's not out. If you, if you'll give him the verdict he deserves, this is going to put him back on an upward tra trajectory and he can find something else to do that will hopefully satisfy this professional craving that he has to, you know, to, 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 to um, practice or to help people. Um, he's just not going to be able to do it as a surgeon, yeah. you know, which is sad. Yeah. So uh, the, um, I, I noticed it for your economic loss portion of the claim that you had a number, I think of between three and a half and four and a half million on his lost income. And I'm just wondering, did you uh, ask for a specific number in close or did you just kind of uh, give them ideas to work with? I gave them a range. I, and I, if memory serves, Steve, I think I, I asked for somewhere between um, eight and 15 million, you know, um, and I'm not even sure how I came up with that. Or, or I mean, obviously that was a game time decision. Um, you know, I, I will confess, we were very concerned about overreaching in this case. In a mm -hmm. like this, and I'm always concerned about it, quite frankly, you know. Um, and it's 
you just have to be aware of that in a relatively small town, although Valdosta is bigger than most towns around here where I practice. And I think you can try a great case and go in and get greedy and ask for too much. And the jury just click turns you off and right. really punishes you for that ask. And so we were really trying to strike a balance between something that was fair and, and that we could justify as being reasonable and grounded with the actual you know, numbers. Um, we had a great economist. Um, he's testified for me in other trials, Dr. Wayne Plumley. He's the Dean of the economic oh, yeah. department at, Right off the state university. So I think he might've been the first expert we hired, you know, we knew we wanted him. He's a hometown local guy. And we're like, this case goes to trial. We got to have Dr. Plumley. So we, we got him on board and he did a real conservative analysis, you know, based upon the tax returns. And you guys are probably, I'm sure you're aware. I mean, most professionals, you know, kind of hammer on their tax returns, you know, right, right. Um, to, to get them in a range that they can afford to live with. And and so I, I think that he probably was making more money in reality, you know, without some of the deductions being factored in than those tax returns reflected. But we had to, you know, Dr. Plumley say, look, just go straight with the numbers. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Don't, don't deviate from it at all. And that's what it turned out to be between three and a half and four and a half, you know, based upon, you know, a, a life expectancy, present value calculation. So, you know, ultimately well, I think what the jury did was go a little bit, kind of right in the middle of the range that I asked for. And then, um, then did apportion some fault. And I, and I, and I quite frankly, I, I told them in closing that if they felt like they had to do that, that they should, you know, I mean, I, I, we acknowledge fully that, people were supposed to be careful when they sit down. And if, you know, I told the jury that if you get back there and there's a juror who says, look, it's part of this has got to be his fault because he's the one that sat on the stool and you, and you can't convince that juror. Otherwise just, you know, stick 10% on it and be done with it. You know, it did, did you, you mentioned that you talked to the jury, some of the jurors afterwards, did you uh, talk to him about that? You, you know, why they apportioned to him? Was it, because he, you know, the way the defense made it sound is, you know, he wasn't looking where he sat right. and, uh, you know, hadn't used his hand to hold it or, you know, use his foot to pull it in or whatever. Um, did you find out from them what they were thinking there? Yeah. I mean, I got more of the sense that they just wanted to compromise on the number, you know, um, yeah. there were some jurors that wanted to do the top end, you know, or in that 15 million range. And there's some jurors that wanted to, you know, after they were convinced to, to, to go plaintiff, they were still not convinced that it should be for everything that we were asking for. And so I, I think that just became the logical place to make that compromise. Um, you know, why 30 and not 40 or 10? I, I don't know. You know, um, I mean, certainly I thought, felt like we had some very good evidence that he had done anything a reasonable person would have done in sitting down on that stool. We had testimony from the only eyewitness in the case who saw him sit down uh, that he did not sit on the stool unusually in any way. He didn't miss it. You know, he didn't sit short and didn't sit long. I felt like that was pretty good for us. Um, and, you know, the defense called an expert and this is worth mentioning. Um, I, 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 I'm very an expert with a very good reputation from Applied Services, ATS and mm -hmm. Atlanta. We all familiar with them. Um, Dr. David Branny, and he's a really good expert. Um, but what they had him do was almost comical. You know, they, they had 
Dr. Brandy, and they, this was video in a white lab coat, you know, in a, you know, obviously a laboratory setting with this stool, um, with the top of it screwed, you know, to the same height that it was when Dr. Corbett sat on it. And to walk in front of the, you know, camera and say, beginning of test, and he would walk over to the stool and he sat down on it and stood up three times and walked over to the camera and said, end of test. <laughs> oh, then he, then he had, you know, the defense had him do that again. Um, but the, the next time he, he sits down and he's clearly got his rear end stuck out at almost a 90 degree angle where he's purposefully trying to make contact with the stool right on the edge. And almost to the point that he just kind of shifts his hips and bumps it across the floor. And he does that three times and walks by over, back over to the camera and says, you know, end of test. So we got that from, from the defense and, you know, co-counsel and I, after we stopped laughing at it, we were like, what, what are we going to do with this? I mean, this is nothing scientific about it. I mean, why do we need an expert? And we considered Daubert in it, you know, filing a Daubert motion to keep it out, but, it almost was so harmful. Right. You know, we felt like to the defense that so we just decided not to do that and to let it in and and, and to argue to the jury if this is the best they've got, they just really don't have much, you know. <laughs> right, uh, right, exactly. And and so I've got a <laughs> a good friend Charlie Peeler who helped me try the case. Uh, I, I've got a nice plaque that's hanging behind me here in my office with the jury verdict framed in it with, a, with a little placard at the bottom that he gave me that says end of test you know <laughs> <laughs> right yeah, that's I, good I look at occasionally that gives me some inspiration to you know when i'm having a bad day <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely nice. absolutely well you know i feel like apportionment in georgia i mean there's a lot about it that really sucks but i feel like one of the if there's anything good about the jury assigning a small amount of fault to your client is that then that kind of takes them away. It takes it away from them in a motion for a new trial or on appeal, because then right. the, you know, when what's their, their argument is essentially just that they should have, you know, allocated more, but you show the jury considered it and thought about it by right. the fact yeah. that they, they allocated him some fault. I feel like that's the one good thing about a hopefully small, apportionment of fault to the plaintiff. I agree. And I think it really takes, it, it keeps a juror from being in an all or nothing scenario. Absolutely. You know, I totally agree. Feel better about giving something to both sides. And, and, you know, if they can give something to both sides and still declare victory for the plaintiff, I think that that's an easier road Yeah. Uh, for them, you know? So, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, one, one other interesting thing before I forget about it, when we're talking about expert witnesses that, that related to our own expert that was just a crazy development. Oh yeah. I forgot about this before we hired an expert from out of Tampa, Florida, and I'm not going to use his name just out of respect for him. Um, not that you couldn't figure it out, but this was a really good expert and he worked really hard for us on this case. In fact, we, we had him build a replica floor of the operating room with the same type of flooring, same type of subflooring, you know, bought a replica stool, with the hard plastic casters, bought you know another replica stool with the rubber casters, and then he did all of these tests to measure the amount of rolling resistance that it took to get that stool moving across the floor, right? And he videoed all of this, and, and his conclusion was is that the stool with the hard plastic caster was a hundred times more likely to roll away. And in other words, it had you know twice um, 
the, the rubber caster had twice as much rolling resistance as offered by the hard plastic caster. Right. What really supported our hypothesis that there's this the application of the stool was incorrect by the hospital. Well, this expert, um, our case, you know, took forever to get to trial as we talked about, and he testified in another case, in a criminal case down in um, Bay County, Florida, I believe it was. Um, and it was a child abuse case, and his testimony in that case was that the injury the child had suffered was you know, more akin to a fall than it was to an abuse situation. But apparently the prosecutor in that case did not care for that outcome. And um, something occurred with this expert's resume that the prosecutor was able to find and actually had him charged for perjury in that trial and arrested. Wow. So here we are four years into our case, you know, tens upon tens of thousands of dollars <clears throat> invested with this expert. And if you Google searched his name, all you got on the first few pages of Google were that he'd been arrested for perjury. So, you know, clearly that wasn't going to work. And so right. we had to kind of stop midstream and retool. We went and hired another expert, really started from scratch. Um, but the ironic thing was, is that it took so long for our case to get to trial by the time the case came up finally we had our trial date all of those problems had been cleared away for our expert the charges had been dropped he'd been exonerated there were even news articles that, to that effect you know he had paid somebody to clean up his online image um and so we had to really make a tough call as to whether or not we were going to um call him as our expert or not you know and ultimately, he was so good. You know, he testified so well. I knew the jury would like him. We we did file a motion in Lemony to keep any reference to that out. And, and we just, I guess, in, to some extent, rolled the dice that the jurors would follow the court's instruction and not Google search and do their own research. Uh, and to my knowledge, they didn't. They didn't find out anything about that. If they did, they certainly didn't hold it against Dr. Corbett, which was was fortunate. Right. Um, but I I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe, I mean, that I've never had that happen obviously before in a case and <laughs> probably never will again, hopefully never will. Again. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's it never good news to a, get, get something like that on your expert, especially yeah. after you paid him a bunch of money. Right. I mean, it was kind of at that point in time, like what else could possibly go wrong? You know? <laughs> um, right. But as things worked out, maybe the delay in getting the case to trial worked in our favor, you know, because that was all cleared up and, it was less of a concern for us by the time we tried the case. And then we ended up not calling the other expert. We had him ready to go just in case. And, you know, the week before we just decided we were going to go back and rehire our other expert and let him, let him do talk about the test that he had done. And he did a really good job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, Rob, this has been just a great, uh, 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 interview a great uh hearing about your case uh i want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the uh mark corbett versus uh hospital authority of Lowndes county dba south georgia medical center that was tried back in january of 2017 in Lowndes county georgia and resulted in a 10 million dollar verdict uh on behalf of dr corbett um 
Rob, is there anything um, that you want to make sure that our listeners uh, have heard about this trial that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I don't think so, Steve and Yvonne. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. I'm a big fan of your show. I think y'all do a great job. And, and, you know, we were just very, very thankful we were able to get this recovery for Dr. Corbett. The, the hospital paid this judgment in full. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. That's couple, always great to hear. Yeah. A couple of weeks of the trial, um, no appeal. Um, and that, that and having the jury award this verdict in Dr. Corbett's favor on the seventh year anniversary of his fall really was some poetic justice we felt like for him. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, he could not have been happier that, that somebody finally said, look, this wasn't your fault, you know? Um, and so I, it went a long way to getting him back on the road to recovery and he, he's doing much better these days and won't ever be a doctor again, but he's doing well. And so, no, that's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, great result, great work. And, mm -hmm. uh, it's nice to hear when, you know, the other side, uh, realizes that they just need to, you know, be responsible and pay up. So, yeah. uh, so that's yeah. great. We were happy about that as well. And, you know, defense counsel to their credit, tried a really good case, hard fault case, but ultimately convinced their client to do the right thing at the end of it. So yeah. And like to that. Well, Rob, thank you so much. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking with Rob Howe of the Howe Law Firm. And uh, if you want to look up Rob uh, and learn a little about him and his practice, you can uh, look him up at SouthGALaw.com. That's SouthGALaw.com. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again, both. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.